This is the Detection at Scale podcast, a new show designed to help security practitioners succeed at managing and responding to threats at a modern cloud scale. As the volume of data increases and the attack surface expands, it's never been more important to stay ahead of the curve. Each episode will feature interviews with leading security practitioners, thought leaders, and company founders who are building the next generation of security tools. I'm your host, Jack Naglieri, founder and CEO of Panther Labs. Now let's get into today's show. Welcome back to another episode of Detection at Scale. Today I'm here with Kelly Jackson Higgins, who's the editor-in-chief at Dark Reading, which is the most widely read cybersecurity news site and really trusted in the online community for security professionals. I've used Dark Reading for a number of years and I've always found it like very helpful for me just to keep up with other things that might be happening in cybersecurity, not immediately detection focused, but the broader landscape. But really excited to have you on the show. Kelly, welcome. Great. Thank you so much. It's great to be here, Jack. So you've been at Dark Reading for quite a while. You've been there since 2006. And um, I'm really curious about what made you get into cybersecurity and what motivates you to keep focusing on cybersecurity. Yeah, so like most probably people in the industry, I fell into cybersecurity. I originally started out as a, well, sports writer. That's a different story. Uh, ended up as a tech writer at the very beginning. I was covering mainframes, PCs, networking at the point where the internet was really blowing up in the early 90s. And then I really got interested in security because it was things were sort of moving towards that back then. So I kind of started specializing in it just because it was interesting to me. It was still really new. The industry was very new. And I actually was freelancing for my own business. So I was writing for different publications, different media outlets. And that was the space I was really most interested in. And then when Dark Reading was founded in 2006, I was, a couple of my former colleagues were there and they were like, hey, do you want to join me? Join us. And I'm like, sure, that sounds great. I'd love to do cybersecurity full time. And that's kind of where it all started. <laughs> How has the style of stories like changed since then? I mean, there's been quite an evolution in security since the early 2000s and oh, the yeah. 2010s till now. So. What were the Absolutely. big themes that you saw like early on and what is more of the emphasis now? Yeah, so early on when I first joined Dark Reading, it was really the industry was still young in that there were, you know, security researchers like breaking things and then not basically just saying this is broken and publicizing it, right? So there was no responsible disclosure really back then. So a lot of stuff we we're writing about was like, you know, early days was you know, browser vulnerabilities, right? There was this month of bugs that <laughs> that was uh, basically putting out daily new vulnerabilities found in Internet Explorer, for example. So a lot of it back then was more on the physical network. So it was firewall stuff. It was, and then browser stuff was really starting to hit as uh, the web matured. So those are the early days things. And security was still a lot of people just learning things by breaking it and then showing off what they found. And everyone going, oh, whoops. <laughs> there wasn't a lot of the vendors were still pretty new. There weren't a lot of vendors back then. You know, now we've got what 3,000 vendors, I think, or something like that. You could count them on, you know, on a list. You could knew who the vendors were. And there was a lot of focus back then on Windows, obviously, as the main platform. So I'd say a lot of our coverage early on was on the physical on-premise network vulnerabilities that were a new thing. People were, you know, looking into breaking things for the first time really publicly. And it was still, the industry was still young enough that everything was new and exciting. And, you know, now we, vulnerability is just like a common word in our vocabulary. We don't get that excited about it unless it's something really, you know, earth shattering. But back then it was a really big deal to find bugs, right? Did you guys want to have an emphasis on things like breaches? So you talked a lot about vulnerabilities, but like, 
how yeah yeah so that was when we started seeing more cyber attacks right mm-hmm. probably the biggest turning point i would say in our coverage and i don't know what year it was now but we had some early on like there was the heartland breach right that was a big one we had the tjx so it was the whole retail space was getting targeted back then that was probably when the attacks started becoming more public you know like people couldn't hide them anymore if they were being attacked or maybe they didn't know they were being attacked but then it became very public so that was a big shift also in our coverage. There was suddenly this massive amount of news in vertical sectors being attacked, such as retail. That was probably the biggest turning point, I would say, in the early days of dark reading. Yeah, and then there was obviously a big rise, likely in nation-state hacking as well then. Did yep. you guys ever have an emphasis on that too? And, and Oh, how absolutely. Did, how did you get your information? Like, that's the thing oh. I'm curious about, like... Who your sources? Yeah. Tell me. No, I'm just well, kidding. <laughs> I can't tell you my sources are. Um, you know, a lot of the folks who are researching this stuff on the early days, there weren't a lot of people really talking about it, right? It was still kind of quietly being researched. So we had our, you know, deep throat sources <laughs> who would sort of guide us to think. You know, Stuxnet was a big story, for example, that I covered early days. And I had some sources who were close to it, the project, who would sort of guide me on which direction to go, you know, in my coverage. And then, of course, you know, some of the vendors started coming out with their findings, like Symantec and others. But back then, there wasn't as much of research coming out or details as there is today. And really, it was focused mainly back then. It was nation state-wise. It was mostly China and Russia. And now there are a lot more players as well, too. So that's it's a much bigger uh, threat landscape on the nation state side. Yeah. I mean, it's a big responsibility as well to report on these things. So how do you feel about the responsibility as a as an editor-in-chief of a cybersecurity publication. One of the things I think about a lot is there's a lot of scary stuff happening in our industry. And what I don't want us to do is to sort of scare and overhype threats and not offer context and expert advice and recommendations on what cyber defenders can do about it. It's really easy just to say, oh, here's the latest, you know, scary thing you got to worry about. And then I think about our readers, you know, we try to speak to cybersecurity professionals all levels you know, they're reading this stuff every day and they're probably thinking, what am I supposed to do with this? Like we try to give them, you know, in our context, we try to give them not only provide, you know, analysis of what this really means, not just here's a threat, but also what you can do about it, what you should be doing about it. So we try to bring that expert advice in there as well, too. We don't want to just basically drop a bomb and run away on the story so they can actually, you know, they have some, you know, action items so they can take with them. Do you have a recent example of that? Oh, gosh. Well, yeah, there's been so many things going on lately with attacks, but there was, we're actually working on a piece right now, the Rackspace breach. It's fresh in my mind because I just wrote a couple pieces on it this week. They found out that their attack that, that was on them, the ransomware attack that they suffered, they came out this past week or so and talked about how it was not what everyone thought it was, or most people thought it was the proxy, not shell exploit. It was not that. It was actually another vulnerability and they had not applied the patch because there were some issues with the November patch for Microsoft. So they decided to stick with the mitigation, which they were fully under the understanding that was going to block this attack. But a group of ransomware attackers figured out a way around that mitigation and hit them with that. So, you know, one of the things we're trying to look at is, okay, we know that patching is not actually always a simple decision for some organizations. And their main problem was if we throw this patch on that has some issues, it could take down our entire exchange server network for our service that we're offering. And of course, you know, they end up making what was the right decision at that point, but then not knowing <laughs> the attackers are going to figure out a way around the mitigation and still take down their servers. So there's a sort of catch-22 we see a lot, you know, with, you know, for example, Oracle vulnerabilities or with the ICSOT space where patching is not necessarily the, the answer every single time. You have to sort of weigh the risk equation. And 
that's a tough question to answer. And I think that's something we're digging into a lot more right now because we get those questions a lot and we think about these things a lot. And you see examples of where wild patching may have been the answer or maybe it really wasn't the answer. You know, I mean, there's there's always more to it than here's just the update. So I think that's an area that we're exploring a lot. Um, as a matter of fact, there's a story we're coming up today. One of my colleagues is writing on that based on that question. All right, I'll have to look out for that. Yeah. <laughs> what type of relationship do you guys have with security researchers, if any? Yeah, I mean, we've had some that we've talked to for, I mean, we'll be 17 years old this year, which is crazy, that I've known for 17 years. People that I've worked with, they're in, you know, they move around. Obviously, our industry, people move around a lot. There are different places than they were when I first met them. But we have people that we, you know, our sources that we go to as sort of our sanity check, you know, on a topic. We get a lot of pitches from vendors, security vendors, research, you know, here they want us to write about their research. So there's a lot for us to write about. The challenge is kind of picking and choosing from what's the most relevant, what's the most interesting, you know, what's the most unique and, you know, why it's important to our readers. Yeah, the thing that's been top of mind for me a lot is just keeping up with what is happening at Twitter. And a lot of those threads about the Twitter files and government meddling. And like, what's your perspective on the government really going into tech companies and potentially violating like security and privacy? Oh, wow. We have privacy debates all the time internally, like what is privacy? (laughs) We made a joke the other day, internally, like a, a dark joke that privacy is just dead. Like there's really, there's no guarantee of privacy anywhere, right? That's kind of what we see every day in our, in our work and our research and our reporting. Yeah. You know, I don't know what the right answer for Twitter is right now, to be honest. I was on Twitter since early days, probably 2006. I think I joined Twitter and yeah, I mean, it's a tough situation right now. I don't know. I think there is some accountability that tech companies need to have in terms of protecting people's personal information. Absolutely. We've seen how poorly that can go and how dangerous that is. And as a user, not just my personal brand, my personal accounts, but our brand's accounts, that makes me nervous, right? I want to make sure they're being protected or not being, you know, something doesn't happen. So I don't have a real strong, I guess, opinion on the government's approach there, but I think there needs to be some accountability, whatever that it looks like. Yeah, I totally agree. And yeah, privacy is something that is, is very difficult. You have to be very intentional about it. You have to be intentional about the browsers you use, the way that you send messages, Personally, I'm very big on Signal. When people text me SMS, I'm like, I don't want to tell you anything because <laughs> I this is a totally unencrypted format. So yeah, I mean, it's very intentional on in how you go about it for sure. So yeah, I think from a detection perspective, how have you guys like watched this defense sort of evolve? So there's there's attacks that are evolving, but what do you do in terms of covering like defense capabilities and like how do you think about you know, you mentioned like the vendors are have grown significantly in that time. You know, I, I'm I'm part of that, right? Like we are a security company. So how do you think about uh, covering defense as well as like breach? Yeah, that's a big part of our equation. I can't help but think back. There was a sort of turning point, I would say, in the industry in the 2010, 2013 era. I was at RSA and walking the show floor. And this was the time when most vendors were saying, we're going to stop, we protect, we uh, stop every attack, we prevent attacks, you know, it's good, you're not going to get in. And I happened to catch this little startup that had a little booth, and they were showing this tool that basically was saying, okay, the attackers are in, but we're going to watch what they're doing and stop them from doing anything terrible and moving laterally. And I thought, wow, I've never seen a vendor actually say that. <laughs> and it started dawning on me when I was walking around the show floor and having conversations that people were moving past that 
you're not going to get hacked mindset. And yes, this stuff is happening to everyone and it's a given. And what are you going to do about it? Instead of just saying you're going to block it. So it was sort of like this wake up call for the industry that was sort of happening quietly. I wrote a series of articles on it because it really struck me as a huge turning point, you know, in terms of like, we can't really make this thing not get passed. We can do these things, we can, but there are a lot of factors. It's not just one piece of the puzzle. So there's so many layers now, right, to detection and defense. And so we cover all the evolving technologies as they come in. And I've watched them evolve, you know, from EDR evolve, you know, that there are a million DRs now, right? There's XDR, there's, you know, CDR. And I've been watching all that, how that's evolved, because there are so many layers to the network now, too. You know, it's not just your home, you know, physical network anymore. Right? We've got the cloud has opened up a whole nother level that I think we're still really starting to understand in the security space. So yeah, it's a really important piece of what we cover because it's part of the big puzzle of securing an environment. And I think you touched on one of the things that we like to think about too is, I don't like the term security hygiene, but there are a lot of things, sort of best practices that really everyone should be doing, but everyone's not doing. <laughs> I mean, p- people at a personal level aren't doing and definitely organizations surprisingly aren't always doing. So I think there are a lot of pieces to the puzzle here. But yeah, I still think detection is obviously a really important piece because you have to know what's happening. And a lot of that goes back to visibility of your network too. And it's harder now with the cloud. You know, you can talk about IoT, but it really the cloud, I think, is the hardest thing now because people move so quickly to it during the pandemic also and lost some visibility and there's stuff they think they can see and they're not seeing or they just don't know what they're not seeing. What was that startup? Do you remember? You know, I, I should have the name of it now. No, I don't remember. But I remember Dmitry Alperovich was yeah. one of their investors. And that, and mm. he and I were just happening. We were going to meet at that booth for it to talk. And I'm like, oh, this is cool. And I started paying attention to what they're doing. And then we had a long conversation about it. And I was like, this is pretty interesting. Because that just sort of like changed my mindset of how I looked at stories too. And then I started noticing fewer vendors were saying, we stop. <laughs> you won't yeah. get it. And people were saying, I'm never going to get attacked. Everyone started going, well, more like, well when we do or if we do. (laughs) So, yeah. yeah. I agree with that, by the way. I think as a founder, it can be very challenging to be unique in a mission statement. A lot of companies use that. Actually, it's two permutations. The first one is we stop breaches. The other one is we protect your digital way of life. And I guarantee you, if you go read like 10 to 20 mission statements of the biggest security companies, it's one of those two. I know for a fact, like Sentinel One and CrowdStrike both have a very similar mission, which is stop breaches. And when I was coming up with ours, it takes a slightly different approach. So our mission is to make security teams smarter and faster than attackers. And this is exactly what you're talking about, which is being able to observe, orient, and then make decisions. And that's really, as a sim, what you should be doing. You should be an extension of your team. You should be empowering your team to make the right decisions because the fact is that security is very gray. And I think this is why it's been so hard for the industry to build effective products. Because unlike business intelligence or like Okta, for example, SSO, things like this, they're very binary. It's like, yes, you've added functionality and you have an outcome. But in security, it can be so intangible. And as practitioners, you can go for multiple years, a whole job, or maybe like five years and never actually see a breach. Either because you couldn't find it you can detect it because they were so good, which is real, or it just, you were never a target. So have you seen like the companies that are getting targeted? Have you seen that evolve as well over time? 
Yeah, I mean, I think early days, everyone thought, oh, it's just going to be the big names, right? The big brands. But then when we looked at some of those breaches, they started with a supplier, right? The Target story is a perfect example. Their HVAC company was where the attackers got in. I think that was kind of a wake-up call, too, for the industry and smaller businesses thinking, well, you know, I'm not a Target. I'm not a, a Target, literally a Target. I'm not the company Target. I'm not, you know, Heartland. Why would someone want to attack my organization? I think that mindset is changing. There seems to be more of a reality check there, too. And... um yeah, I mean, you think about just hospitals and, you know, getting targeted and universities. I mean, there, there are a lot, almost every possible organization out there is a target. And whether they know it or not, right, is usually what happens. I hate to say this, but I always think the only good thing <laughs> about ransomware is that it made it more visible and more, you know, in your face. Like, and that sounds like a really cynical thing to say, but you could sort of hide malware infections before unless you had a, you know, a data breach where, you know, financial information was exposed and you had to report it. But once ransomware got in there, you know, taking down your network was, you couldn't hide from that, right? That was, it seems like it really did shake up the industry quite a bit. Even businesses that didn't really know much about security or didn't really worry about it, like hospitals. I mean, unfortunately, they have been targets, right? That's, it's not great and it's disturbing, but it really has kind of woken up, I think, you know, businesses and organizations as a whole, because you see that and you know what it is. Because almost everyone, you know, like you go to a, you can talk to your family over the holidays, they know what ransomware is, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, whereas maybe five years ago, they didn't know what malware was. If you can have conversations with anybody about ransomware now, they might not know the details, but they've heard of it and they get what it does. Yeah. So unfortunately, it's been a, that kind of was a, a game changer in a sad way. Phishing is the same way, right? I mean, if you look mm-hmm. at a lot of the more recent things that happened, like Uber is a great example. How yep. an employee got fished and then they basically owned the company. It's crazy. That's become a lot more prominent as well. So yeah, yes. phishing, ransomware. And I guess also with the rise of cryptocurrency, it probably made ransomware a little bit easier, more anonymous. Yeah. <laughs> which isn't great. No. <laughs> so do you have any untold stories or some crazy things that you've witnessed in your time reporting on security or like reporting on the industry that you can share? Oh gosh. Yeah, I mean, probably just, you know, I would think the craziest time in the industry for me early on was during the doxing era, as I called it, with Anonymous and LulzSec. It was such a strange time because the purpose of it was more just to like in your face audaciousness of it. You know, it wasn't like it was for money making or it was more for just, you know, like what people used to think of hacking as, you know, cool showing what you did, but it was to make a point. But it got really hurtful and frightening. I remember like some people in the security industry feeling really nervous about who's in those organizations. Like, you know, who are they? And, you know, can I trust people? There was this whole like nervousness and who you can trust. I remember (laughs) interviewing, there were a few people anonymous who were their spokespeople who would talk to the press. And it was the weirdest thing to interview them because you're realizing this is a person, can you trust what they're saying? And they didn't have like a unified mission, they would tell you that we're not a centralized organization, we're a bunch of individuals. So getting one member's perspective might not agree with another member's perspective is very strange way to to do research on a story. It was always really awkward, because you had to really weigh, you know, is this something I can report on? Is this, you know, kind of how do I confirm this? It was always a little bit strange. And then not knowing, you know, who was in Walsack for a while, you know, until they got unmasked. And it was just a really strange time in the industry. I felt like a lot of people just felt uneasy that it was getting I don't know, a little unhealthy, just the mindset that was kind of rough. And it did, luckily it didn't last that long, <laughs> but it was a strange time, a very strange time for reporting. Yeah, I do remember when a lot of it was very in your face as well. And yeah. the, just the perception of, you know, oh, are there people around me who are an anonymous? You know, it's... Yeah, I mean, there were people asking it. those questions, like there were oh, suspicions of some people. It was just a very strange time. 
Yeah, for sure. Well, cool. Kelly, this has been really interesting. I, uh, I'm really glad we had the chance to talk. We typically end with three pieces of security advice. So I'm curious from your perspective, obviously you've covered security for so long and you alluded to some of this when you were mentioning like organizations can do a lot better, like basic hygiene and you know we can do better at privacy. So I'm curious on like, what are your three pieces of security advice that you could give listeners for them to take away into the future? Yeah, well, you know, I, I do preach this to my family and friends and they don't always listen to me. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think one of the things is just, you know, the basic stuff, like be smart about your authentication, always use multi-factor, like don't even hesitate to do that. Like that's an easy one, right? For organizations, I would say one thing I was really intrigued by, and this doesn't happen very often, it happened, it's happened in a few cases and stories I've done, but if you're a victim organization, don't hide things, come out and talk about it. I think that really helps, like, for example, when Mandiant came out with the SolarWinds thing and just gave out all what happened to them, that was hard for them to do that. Like, I'm sure it took a while to get all the pieces in place to come out and explain what happened. But I think that helps not only that you don't have so much speculation going on, but you also, it helps other potential victims. Like, you're actually helping the ecosystem if you speak out. I got that talking to Rackspace this week. I was really surprised how forthcoming they were about details. Like, that, we don't get that all the time, right? It's very rare. And I know it's hard for an organization to, you know, admit what happened or to, you know, you can't give all your details sometimes because of the investigation. But as much as you can share, I think is really important. I think Heartland was the first to do that way back. And they did it like much longer after the attack, but their CEO went out and started talking about it. And that was the first time I don't think anybody had ever done that before. And I think that's really useful for the industry. It also makes it less, you know, sort of mysterious. And then you can actually address what the issues are, right? We can look at the questions of patching or the questions of, you know, did you have a user with an account that was sitting out there you didn't know about? You know, those kind of things that are common mistakes that e are easily made, especially now in the cloud world. I think having companies really be open about their experience is extremely helpful. And also, I think it helps them PR-wise, to be honest. You know, I, I, I mean, reporters love it, obviously, because we, we get more details. But I think you have less people saying, well, I think they must have done this. <laughs> and the speculation, can, I think, can be more damaging in some ways. So I feel like as much honesty as you can, if you've been hit and you want to share it because I think it really does help the whole ecosystem, to be honest. I think it's really good for everyone. Yeah. I mean, those are probably the main things for me is, you know, the be smart with your authentication, you know, get visibility into stuff you have out there. I know that's not simple right now. There are a lot of tools for that. And there are things that you may not know about, but, you know, stay on top of your applications, your, you know, your accounts that get, you know, left that are still there after someone left, or <laughs> there's a lot of floating, you know, credentials out there sometimes, you know, you see those kind of things, you know, just get on top of that stuff. I know it's not easy. It's been a lifelong challenge in IT. And it's even harder now in the cloud. But I think that's a really important piece of the puzzle is just seeing what you have, and getting on top of it so you can secure it. Because if you don't know, that's probably what the bad guys are going to go after and find before you do. I loved that advice. The second one you gave me, I liked all of it. But the one about being open, it really resonated. And a company that's close to me as well, Dropbox, actually recently did this. They came out and explained what had happened and the effect of it. And I think what that does is it builds really intense trust because if you don't do that, like you said, people are just going to speculate and they're never going to know. And it doesn't really help the industry either because then others don't understand what's happening. And as defenders, that's one of the best things we can do is we can share that information and share it with each other. Sharing publicly is tricky, as you point out, for various reasons you can get fined, there's people's privacy at stake, like, etc. So overall, though, I, do, I really do agree with you and think that the transparency builds trust. That's a key part of trust. 
I mean, there's that whole conversation about how, you know, the bad guys work together. The good guys should be too, <laughs> you know, For as sure. much as, as we, as defenders can, you know, help each other out. That's really, and support each other. I think that's the key. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Awesome. Kelly, this has been a really awesome conversation. I really appreciate your time and uh, look forward to talking with you again. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. It was nice, nice to be here. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Detection at Scale podcast brought to you by Panther Labs. For access to the latest episodes, please visit our website at www.runpanther.io forward slash podcast. And for those interested in running Panther, head to our website, runpanther.io to sign up for a free trial. You'll get a dedicated instance with the ability to analyze your security logs in real time at any scale powered by detections as code and sending into a very robust security data lake. Our goal is to make detection and response easy, scalable, and fast for you, the practitioner. Thanks. See you again next time.